iTunes presents Meet the Author. Good evening and welcome to the Apple Store Soho. Uh, we're thrilled to have you all here this evening for a very special Meet the Author event. This new series gives authors a chance to share their latest works and participate in a discussion with you, the audience. Tonight, in this second installment, we are joined by America's favorite political pundit, Stephen Colbert. for a very special reading and discussion from his new book, I Am America and So Can You. Moderating tonight's discussion is the host of radio's The Sound of Young America, Jesse Thorne. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Colbert! Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I want to point out before we get started uh, that while I get to uh, say all the words on my show and my name's on the cover of the book, uh, the book is the fruit of a lot of uh, uh, geniuses. Um, this was written by Stephen Colbert, Richard Dom, Paul Dinello, Allison Silverman, Michael Brum, Eric Drysdale, Rob Dubbin, Glenn Eichler, Peter Gross, Peter Gwynn, Jay Katzier, Laura Kraft, Frank Lesser, and Tom Purcell. Not necessarily in that order. All right. I'm no fan of books. And chances are, if you're reading this, you and I share a healthy skepticism about the printed word. Well, I want you to know this is the first book I've ever written, and I hope it's the first book you've ever read. Don't make a habit of it. Now, you might ask yourself, if by yourself you mean me, Stephen, if you don't like books, why did you write one? You just asked yourself a trick question, mister. I didn't write it. I dictated it. I shouted it into a tape recorder over the Columbus Day weekend, then handed it to my agent and said, sell this. He's the one who turned it into a book. It's his funeral. But I get your drift. Why even dictate? Well, like a lot of other dictators, there's one man's opinion I value above all others, mine. And folks, I have a lot of opinions. I'm like Lucy trying to keep up with the candy at the chocolate factory. I can barely put them in my mouth fast enough. In fact, I have so many opinions, I have overwhelmed my ability to document myself. Now, I thought my nightly broadcast, The Colbert Report, check your local listings, would pick up some of the slack. But here's the dirty little secret, folks. When the cameras go off, I'm still talking. Right now, all that opinion is going to waste like seed on barren ground. Well, no more. It is time to impregnate this country with my mind. You see, at one time, America was pure. Men were women, women were women, and gays were confirmed bachelors. <laughs> but somewhere around the late 60s, it became groovy to let it all hang out while you keep on trucking, stopping only to give a hoot. And today, Lady Liberty is under attack from the cable channels, the internet blogs, and the Hollywood celebritocracy out there spewing facts like so many locusts descending on America's crop of ripe, tender values. And any farmer or biblical scholar will tell you, locusts are damn hard to get rid of. <laughs> now I said on my first broadcast of the Colbert Report that together I was gonna change the world and I've held up my end of the bargain. But it's not changing fast enough. Last time I checked, my supermarket still sold yogurt from France. See a pattern? Turns out it takes more than 30 minutes a night to fix everything that's destroying America, and that's where this book comes in. It's not some collection of reasoned arguments supported by facts. That's the coward's way out. <laughs> this book is truth, my truth. I deliver my truth hot and hard, fast and furious. So either accept it without hesitation or get out of the way because somebody might get hurt and it's not gonna be me. Think you can handle it? I'm scared of Koreans. <laughs> Bam! That's me off the cuff, blunt and in your face. No editing. I think it, I say it, you read it. Sometimes I don't even think it, I just say it. Baby carrots are trying to turn me gay. You see, 
I'm not pulling any punches. I'm telling it like it is. Get used to it or put this book down. Because this book is for America's heroes. And who are the heroes? The people who bought this book. <laughs> that bears repeating. People who borrow this book are not heroes. They are no better than welfare queens mooching off the system like l card carrying library card carriers. For the record, we are not offering this book to libraries. No free rides. Okay, now it's my turn to ask a question. What do I want from you? Good question. Just because I haven't put a lot of thought into this book doesn't mean you shouldn't. I want you to read this book carefully, savor my ideas, memorize pertinent passages, eat with it, sleep with it, let nature take its course. Because what I have dictated is nothing less than a constitution for the Colbert Nation. And like our founding fathers, I hold my truths to be self-evident, which is why I did absolutely no research. <laughs> I didn't need to. Only research I needed was a long, hard look in the mirror. For this book is my story, and as such, it is the American story. You know, I'm reminded of the words of Walt Whitman, the 19th century poet, naturalist, and all-around man's man who through his epic lyricism defined the character of this new nation, he said, I celebrate myself and sing myself. And what I assume, you shall assume. That I he was talking about, it's me. <laughs> Bottom line, read this book, be me. I am America. And so can you. Chapter four, religion. Bad news for the godless, religion is inescapable. There has never been a human society without some form of worship. And don't point to communist societies like the Soviet Union, they worship blue jeans. Of course, beatniks, peaceniks, and no goodniks question why we need religion. Imagine they croon, there's no countries. It isn't hard, it's true. Nothing to fight or kill for, and no religion too. Now you may find that idea appealing because it rhymes, but so does this. God said to Noah, there's gonna be a floody floody. Get those children out of the muddy muddy. Mine rhymes four times. Now, the children mentioned in that Bible verse didn't think they needed religion either, and look what happened to them. Drowny, drowny. <laughs> Bottom line, religion is the cornerstone of civilization. Without it, we would have no laws, no morality, no social structure, and no guidelines for furnishing our tabernacles. We would exist in a state of pointless, valueless depravity like they do in Holland. <laughs> okay, good news. Religion exists. And so mankind can benefit from its numerous gifts. One, law. Ten Commandments are the basis of our entire system of justice. Without them, we wouldn't have laws. And without laws, there'd be chaos. Those two tablets give you everything you need to run an orderly society. Lying, stealing, murdering, adultery, idol worship, and coveting are out. Parent honoring and Sabbath observance are in. By the way, if you're reading this on your religion's Sabbath, you better have a non-believer there turning the pages for you because when it comes to the Ten Commandments, I'm an originalist. That means if a neighbor takes so much as a covenant's glimpse at my wife, I'm looking for my lucky stoning hat. <laughs> Two, morality. Religion lays out clear definitions of good and evil, distinguishing good deeds, or solids in biblical Hebrew, <laughs> from sins. Think about it. Without this guidance and reward slash punishment system, how would we know that it's actually good to give charity to beggars? Plus, without the concept of right and wrong, we'd have no cowboy movies or cop shows because there'd be no good guys and bad guys. Just guys. <laughs> and forget about karaoke. I mean, if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right is my go-to crowd pleaser. But who wants to hear, if loving you is okay, then okay. <laughs> Social cohesion, <clears throat> or rather social cohesion, 
Religion gives communities reasons to come together and build bonds through shared participation in rituals. Admit it, people would never speak to anyone outside their immediate families if not for mandatory pilgrimages to holy rocks or watching virgins' hearts get carved out atop their ziggurats. Hope. I believe it was the tiger philosopher Hobbes who described human life as solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Religion allows us to ignore all that by praying. When we appeal to our deities with a slaughtered you or prostration, or in the case of Hare Krishna's airport conga line, we exert some control over our existence and are filled with hope that God may improve it. Otherwise, we're just chanting our deepest desires into a silent, indifferent void. How depressing would that be? Meaning. Life is chaotic and unpredictable. If a butterfly flaps its wings in one part of the world, it could cause people at the opposite end of the world to watch a Discovery Channel special on butterflies. <laughs> and what's on next? A show about tornadoes. And who made such a harrowing program schedule full of seemingly randomless destruction? It was God's will. Responsibility. Religion forces every individual to take responsibility. Specifically, take it away from yourself and give it to God. <laughs> if we had to be accountable for every one of our actions, we'd be crippled with indecision. But with religion pointing the way, we can feel confident in our choice to picket our children's elementary school when we find out that the art teacher is gay. <laughs> Just want to shout out and say a hi to Mr. Jelinek. <laughs> okay. So we know when you follow God, you're riding the winning train. Okay, but if you want to go first class on Christ track, there's only one way to ride, Roman Catholicism. Jesus founded the only one church, and it wasn't Unitarian, folks. He took his apostle Simon, and he made him into a rock and built a church on him. It's called the Holy Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church, or church for short. Now, Catholics have many advantages over other Christians. One is marble. For the book I put in the collection plate, I want some production value. That means a church, not some community center that doubles as a basketball court. Also, Catholics have saints, more than 10,000 of them. They're like God's customer service reps. Each one of them has a specialty. Say you lose your wallet. You could bother the creator to help you find it, but if you're a Catholic, you don't have to. Just pray to St. Anthony. Finding lost things is all he does for eternity. Also, there are times you might want to pray to St. Agatha. She's the patron saint of nursing and bell making. If you're both a nurse and a bell maker, that is one-stop shopping. Now, some are put off by the labyrinthine structure of Catholic dogma, but many of its rituals are quite beautiful, and not just when edited together as a tense poetic counterpoint to brutal violence in mafia films. <laughs> hey, but maybe you're not ready for Roman Catholicism, okay? As the saying goes, there are many roads to God. Some are just more twisty than others. So, if you want to get a little needless exercise, why don't you try one of these goat paths to nowhere? <laughs> Protestantism. This is a variant form of Christianity or heresy. <laughs> Protestants don't make me angry as much as disappointed. Unlike the world's crazy made-up religions, they are so close to getting it right. They're a single pope away from reaching their full potential. But instead of stepping up and making a commitment to one holy Catholic and apostolic church, they're stuck on this notion of independence, of unmediated faith in Christ. Do you really think God prefers a mess of polyglot, disorganized prayers over the elegant, handwritten Latin epistles of Benedict XVI? As if he doesn't have enough to do already without putting your requests for an above-ground pool into babblefish. So we get it, Protestants, okay. You've had your 490-year protest, let's move on. Martin Luther was probably right to translate the Bible into German, and I'll grant you, he may have had a legitimate beef about selling indulgences, but let's stop living in the past. When you're ready, the church's doors are always open. We'll let you back into eternal salvation. All you have to do is say a few Hail Marys, feel a little guilty, and deliver us your massive army of lockstep value voters. Plus, 
if you come back into the fold, I've got some bargain basement relics you might be interested in. I'm talking about rare primo St. Elbruf shinbone. <laughs> Judaism. Now, I have nothing but respect for the Jewish people. Since the Bible is 100% the true word of God and Jews believe in the Old Testament, that means Judaism is 50% right. <laughs> My biggest problem with Judaism is its tradition of literary criticism, its highest ideals to sit around studying day and night. You can't trust any religion with that kind of book fetish. As much as I love the Bible, even I can only read C As much as I love the Bible, even I can only read so much in one bathroom sitting. Let alone the Talmud. Seriously, Rashi, every tractate needs a commentary? It wouldn't hurt to take a seltzer break once in a while. Also, this whole notion of Jewish guilt, hmm, sounds familiar. Maybe because it was originally called Catholic guilt. Quit trying to steal our spot as guiltiest religion, Jews. If your mother knew about this blatant theft, it would kill her. Kill her. And they don't even need the guilt. They've got plenty of other ways to make themselves miserable. Just look at their holidays. The most important one involves spending a day not eating and thinking about all the bad things they've done. You get the day off from work and you spend it moping, count me out. Look guys, you need to lighten up. I've been to Jewish weddings. I know you can cut loose when you want to. That thing with the chair is crazy. Let's bring around a little bit more of that. Chapter six. Sex. Now that I have your attention, I want to talk about sex. If I had to sum up sex in one word, it would be this one. Sex is power. I've had an extra word. Sex is a gift from God. But before I go on to the good stuff, and believe me, this chapter gets steamier than a co-ed clam bake. There's something I have to do. You see, I'm a role model, folks. A lot of young people look up to me, and I don't want them to get into trouble with sex. So if you're a young person who's not yet married, before reading on, you must read and sign the following pledge. The Sex and Dating Chapter Pledge for Unwed Youth. I, state your name, pledge to remain sexually abstinent until married to a person of the opposite sex and of legal age. I swear that any knowledge I gain in the following pages regarding human sexuality will be applied only in the private context of a nuptial bed, nuptial kitchen, nuptial bathroom floor, or incorporated into anecdotes to provoke awe in my peers. Should I one day successfully employ any of the information, tips, or techniques provided herein in conjunction with my spouse, I pledge that after a reasonable period of no longer than 24 hours, I will credit it them to Stephen Colbert. All right, let's get freaky. <laughs> As I mentioned, folks, sex is power. The power to create life, the power to ruin your life, and the power to sex it up good. <laughs> if you refuse that power, you'll be cheating yourself, and in my case, hundreds of lovely ladies out of something very special. My penis. <laughs> but even though sex can be wonderful, it can also be a scary, like a maniac or a haunted house. Two things that happen to go great with sex. <laughs> now, before I stimulate you further, I should address a fundamental question here. Why do we have sex? Well, I'm on record as preaching abstinence. I talk about it on my TV show, elsewhere in this book, in pamphlets I hand out on street corners, occasionally in skywriting. <laughs> but there is a proper time to have sex when you want to reproduce. The body parts to which we are attracted are directly linked to child production and nurturing. For men, it's the breasts that provide our offspring nutrition, the legs to which they cling, the lips that kiss those babies goodnight, and the small of the back that teaches our children about the folly of tattoos. <laughs> For women, they're mainly attracted to the balls. <laughs> There's nothing the ladies love more than a big sack. I mean something a cartoon bandit would carry out of a bank. <laughs> Woo! That, that is racy stuff. That poetic description of what a woman yearns for may have heated the blood of some of my female readers, even some of those who signed the abstinence pledge. Remember, you took an oath. So here's a little scripture sorbet to cool your palate. 
It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. First Thessalonians 4.3. Exactly. It may be Chad's will that you chug a few wine coolers and drive up to the lake because it's really beautiful up there. But who are you going to listen to on this one? An omnipotent deity or a management trainee at Outback Steakhouse? And for any male readers who found my bandit sack imagery arousing, here's another passage. If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Okay, on the record, that is not homophobic. That is homicidal. There is a difference. <laughs> All right. Here's a section for the ladies. Dating dues. First, some crucial advice. Be on your guard. You might be looking for a life partner, but your date's most likely looking for a disco partner. Be cautious. Being cautious lets a man know he'll have to put up some effort to make your acquaintance and the right kind of guy will respect you for it, girls. That said, show some cleavage. <laughs> it lets a man know that you're confident enough to show some cleavage, so put on something that makes you feel like he'll feel you're sexy. And get ready to have some fun. If you go out to dinner, let him pay, you deserve it. Plus, offering to pay makes you look like you've got money to burn. Before you know it, he'll be hitting you up for loans and asking to borrow your car. I've done it dozens of times. <laughs> and during the meal, here's a tip, Order something that will get his attention, like a side of bacon for dessert. <laughs> How to entice a woman for the fellas. Real ladies want a real man. What's a real man? Well, I'm a real man. Nothing I can do about that, even though some people want me to apologize for it. Well, no go, folks. I will continue treating a lady like a lady, even though it's enough to get you smacked with a lawsuit these days. My legal defense team has advised me not to say any more than that. <laughs> so what's a real man again? A real man is someone who walks through life the way a pilot walks through an airplane. Cool, calm, and checking out the sexy stews. No matter how tough the situation gets, a real man never lets on about the faulty landing gear. The point is, if you want to attract the ladies, there are a few things you'll need to know about being a man. Unluckily for you, You've come to the right book. How to ask out a woman. 98% of the confusion in modern relationships starts right here, folks. Be direct about your intentions like this. Good evening, insert girl name here. Would you be interested in going out on a date, potentially burying my children and quitting your job to raise them? They will appreciate your candor. Don't fall into the trap of saying something like, hey, how would you like to hang out sometime? Then the girl doesn't know if it's a date or not. And one thing leads to another, and the next thing you know, you're living with a woman who might just be your friend. <laughs> how to act on a first date. If you want your first date to lead to another, follow two simple rules. One, always order for the woman. She's wrapped up in food issues. A woman is afraid if she orders the entree, she's going to look like a pig. But if she only gets a salad, you'll think she's anorexic. Take the guilt and shame away from her. Plus, it lets her know who's going to be in charge in the bedroom. <laughs> two, don't do all the talking. It's rude. Do two-thirds of the talking. <laughs> That's why I keep a chess clock in my jacket pocket. Okay? Lower your expectations. A date doesn't have to be perfect. You're not going to the barber, for gosh sakes. Are you about to meet the woman of your dreams? Probably not. So just think of each date as a love scrimmage to prepare you for the marriage playoffs. Nobody's keeping score. But for the record, I'm winning. Be a gentleman. Chivalry never goes out of style. Open doors, pull out chairs, offer to undo your own belt. How to dance. There's no way around it. Women will judge your potential in the sack by how you acquit yourself on the dance floor. So a few rules, fellas. Never dance alone. If you have to, hover dance around the perimeter of a group of women dancing together and wait for one to respond to your display. <laughs> Try holding your arms akimbo. In the poor lighting of a dance club, this makes you appear larger. If one of them does turn to you, apply your move. I do what I call the Colbert shuffle. I shuffle to the left for four steps, then shuffle back to the right for four steps. 
adjust to tempo. Chapter 11, The Class War. Tales from the Heart. Let me tell you a story. Growing up, I lived in a classic American neighborhood. It was a melting pot of hardworking Irish, British, English, Scottish, Scots-Irish, Welsh, and Northern Irish. Each morning, my pop would rise at the crack of dawn and walk a mile to pretend he was going to the store to pick up our breakfast. In the winter months, he'd chop down a neighbor's woodshed so we'd have fuel to burn. When he got home, he would polish our shoes. If we couldn't afford shoes, he'd polish our feet. Then he sent us off to school with our sack lunches of pine cones and salt. Once he knew we were taken care of, he'd leave for his job working for the local rich guy. All day in class, I would think about what my dad did for us, how hard he worked, and that I never wanted to do any of that. I wanted to be the local rich guy, and today I am. Okay, you want to change your class? Here's how. As a pundit, it's my job to fight for the little guy. In terms of the percentage of population, that means the upper class. But all Americans are important to me. I won't be satisfied until everyone is in the top 1%. <laughs> you see, we're lucky here in America. We live in a free market society. Think of it as a ladder. No matter what rung you're born on, you have the exact opportunity as everyone else to get to the top. Sure, you may say that some folks have less distance to climb than others, or that many of the lower rungs are slippery because they're covered with garbage, and your high school didn't have an AP ladder climbing class, and the rung right above yours is out of order, and your landlord keeps saying he's going to fix it, but he never does, and all the while, the guy who hangs out on the corner of your rung is constantly trying to get you high, and you're wondering that maybe if you get a little help up this ladder, well, mister, all the help you need is at your fingertips, if your fingertips are touching your ankles. I'm talking about bootstraps. You can always pull yourself up by your bootstraps or turn the lemons life has given you into lemonade. When life hands you a farm, make farm aid. Now clearly America has no shortage of metaphorical opportunities for the poor. But some people would rather just stay poor to make the rest of us feel guilty. Well, don't look for any sympathy here. Instead of getting rich and paying their own way, they'd rather go on welfare, and the liberals are more than happy to give it to them. Now, I'm not the smartest knife in the spoon, so explain this to me. We're supposed to help folks out of poverty by giving them a financial reward for being poor? That doesn't add up. If being poor is such a never-ending money party, where's the incentive to get rich? Answer me this. What's going to help a shiftless vagabond more? A page of food stamps or the page from this book where I explain the free market ladder? <laughs> Hint, my paragraph gives him motivation and maybe, maybe even teaches him what a ladder is. <laughs> Chapter 13, Immigrants. Do we have a problem with illegals? I'll say. Now, a lot of people, including my spell check, have a problem with the term illegals. They say it's not a word. And even if it were, it would be insensitive to the feelings of the people who are breaking our nation's laws. Fine, let's call them immorals. Because what could be more immoral than a Guatemalan crossing into this country to pick our American fruit because her kids are poor? Let me tell you about my struggle. I'm a member of a mixed-race marriage. While I am the proud product of hardy Irish Catholic stock, my wife is Scots Presbyterian. In the old country, our love could never have been. In fact, a glance at my wife's family record shows that her ancestors moved on to the very land my family was forced to abandon when that roundhead son of a bitch, Oliver Cromwell, forced the Irish west of the River Shannon to farm rocks. But when the Colbert clan set sail for America, they harbored two shining hopes. That they could survive a three-month steerage passage on coal and onion peel soup 
and that one day their children could forget the enmity of the past and live a life of freedom. I've done them one better. Seven generations on, I've planted my Irish flag on the very family that stole our land. <laughs> you see, the great thing about my marriage is that it symbolizes the hope America once offered its immigrants. Here, immigrants received a gift never given before in world history. They could leave the past behind. Another less exciting gift was cholera. How lucky they were to erase all remnants of their previous lives, languages, and cultures and go about the business of becoming an American Christian. So let's take that beautiful idea to its logical conclusion and not only leave the past behind, but deny the past ever happened. It's easy, like this. America is not a land of immigrants. There, was that so hard to say? It makes sense if you think about it. It feels like we've been here forever, doesn't it? Let's just assume we have been. How does it taste to smash the shackles of our past? It tastes like freedom. And now that we've liberated ourselves from the old factual myth of our immigrant history, we can focus on the future. And let me tell you, there are some dark times ahead because for the first time in our new history, we are being swarmed by legions of immigrants. And uh, uh, finally, I would like to have Allison Silverman, my executive producer, uh, come up here and read uh, uh, something we have at the end of every chapter, which is, Stephen Speaks for Me, a chance for average Americans to agree with what I think. <laughs> and uh, what Allison's about to read is from the sex and dating chapter, and this is from Your Soulmate. Hey there, I'm your soulmate, the one person on this earth who's perfect for you in every way. Yes, I exist, and yes, everyone else you've met or been with is a pale substitute. We're meant to be together, but we've never met. You see, there are six billion people in the world, and you encounter at most about a thousand people per day, so statistically, our paths would cross only once every 16,500 years. If we're gonna beat those odds, you need to work harder because so far, you've done a spectacular job of messing this up. <laughs> Remember when you bought that pack of gum and the clerk asked if you wanted a bag, but you were in a rush, so you said no? If you'd waited that extra three seconds, you would have missed the next train, making you late for the play so they wouldn't have let you in the theater until the first scene was over, and I would have entered the lobby also late, and we'd have gotten to talking. We probably would have just skipped the play and gotten coffee and then, Pow, 50 years of golden summers at the lake house. <laughs> Another example, remember when you signed up for a yoga class? You should have signed up for a pottery class. I was taking a pottery class. How hard is that to figure out? And don't just sign up for a pottery class next time because I might have moved on to hip hop cardio. I can't tell you exactly where I'll be because if you're really my soulmate, you'll just know. Please just get it right. Last time I dealt with my disappointment by sleeping with the pottery instructor. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is this. Next time you think about going to the museum today instead of tomorrow when I'll be there, ask yourself, do you really want to spend the rest of your life alone? <laughs> are you going to take the bus or are you going to walk? If you do walk and it's raining, how are you going to see me under my umbrella? A unless I don't have one and you share yours or I share mine, and that's how we meet. So remember, never leave the house without an umbrella, or with one. It's your choice. I think I explained pretty clearly what's at stake. Are you reading this at a bookstore? I'm right behind you, turn around. Am I still there? God, you're a slow reader. Point is, hanging over every decision you make, however small, is the sword of our loneliness. I am out there. Find me. But please hurry. I know we're meant to be together for eternity, but I can't wait forever. Oh my God. I, I just ran into my pottery teacher. That is so random. <laughs> Mm. 
ladies and gentlemen, Jesse Thorne and Stephen Colbert. Thanks very much. That that I, I wanted Allison to read that one. Besides the fact she's a great reader, uh, that's my favorite thing in the book. I think <laughs> I, I I I cry when I hear it. All right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, not at all. Um, so you just spent like half an hour performing as television Stephen Colbert, and as I was watching it, I mean, I a thousand opening questions went through my head, but the one that kind of emerged was, are you ever like having a tired day and you can't bear the idea of being that big for the half hour that you have to be on television? No, because uh, <laughs> I like crave attention. And uh, <laughs> if I go out there and I don't go see the guy, they're, they're not going to pay attention to little old me. What? They want him. No, I, I, I love it. The, the thing about, and there may be some performers in the audience tonight, the thing about performing is you can be really sick, but if the audience is there and they're ready and they appreciate you, um, Everything goes away as soon as you're on camera or, or on stage. What are, your, what are your favorite parts about the character? Like, what's your, what's your favorite aspect of him? Um, his willful ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> I say the same thing to every guest who's on the show. I say, now, I don't know, have you seen the show? Uh, uh, I do the character, uh, I do the show in character, and he's an idiot. And, <laughs> and he's willfully ignorant of what we're going to talk about, but he's no less passionate for his ignorance. So uh, just to disabuse me of my ignorance, and the fun will be my unwillingness to accept the information that you give me. <laughs> so uh, I, I like the emotion of it, and the emotion is really the, the fear and the anger that comes when a really stupid person is being corrected. <laughs> and that's my character. Um, the show's been on the air a couple years, and obviously Two years it's... Uh, 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 tomorrow. Oh, congratulations. Thank you very much. And uh, obviously, to some extent, this is, uh, this is a riff on sort of similar themes to your character on The Daily Show, but it's also a little bit different. I was wondering, what have you sort of discovered in that two years that you didn't expect going into this? Um, well, when, when we decided to, to do the show, uh, we obviously we looked for models, um, and a few came to mind, um, obviously. Um, Bill O'Reilly was one of them, and and there were, there were others. You know, there was sort of uh, I loved how just like a polished you know coin Anderson Cooper is, and <laughs> could I look that crisp? You know, or or could I just be so bullet-headedly incurious as Sean Hannity, or could I mull the news like Aaron Brown, just mm, or suck all the flavor out of it before I said it. Uh, but ultimately, you want to, you know, you want to go for the king, and the king was O'Reilly. And what surprised me is our ability to do things like um, the the metaphor off with Sean Penn, or or uh, the ice cream off with uh, Willie Nelson, or the green screen challenge, or uh, Guitar Mageddon. Um, <laughs> And because every night we do, every time we do one of those nights, and like every, about every three months we do one of these sort of tent post nights of the show that's completely different, I turn to Allison or someone else at the show and I go, "Remember, we're just like O'Reilly. He would have a guitar contest, <laughs> you know, with the Decemberists." <laughs> and what surprised me is how far afield we can go from the format, it, and it, it doesn't it doesn't really break the show because the show is about whatever the character cares about. It feels like it's almost applying that single-minded passion that those pundits have to anything. Any, anything. The show is about anything that the character cares about. And occasionally, that makes for a very, very odd content on the show of what he cares about. Like, his continuing passion and fear about bears <laughs> is... It makes no sense. And yet, it makes complete sense to the audience on the show that I would not drop that because everybody else is ignoring this threat except me. By the way, somebody sent me photographs uh, today. I don't know if I told this, Allison. Somebody in the Pacific Northwest fed my book to a bear. <laughs> and they sent, us, they sent us the photographs of the, book, of the bear going through the book. And if you're wondering what tomorrow night's number one threat will be, you need not wonder for long. That wrote itself. 
I think Bear is just such a wonderful example. Do you remember where your enmity for your character's enmity for bears came from? Yes, it originally was uh, the very first uh, threat down we did. I forgot, like, Countdown to Fear is what we called it originally, <laughs> something like that. Then we no, it needs to be shorter, the threat down. And the very first one we did before the show was ever on the air, because we used to just do them in Allison's office. Um, where uh, I would read the script and Allison would have the graphics either written, drawn on a piece of paper and she'd hold it over my shoulder or she'd turn her computer around and just show us what things would look like and the whole staff would get in there and go, yay, we might have jobs. Um, and the very first one we ever did, an alligator, uh, no, a snakehead tried to swallow an alligator and we had this great, gra great picture of an alligator crawling out of the side of a snake's body. And we thought, oh, that's it. My character's going to be terrified of alligators. That's going to be his thing. By the time we got to air, that story was really old. And the story that was there was bears. That's the story. <laughs> and so we went, okay, it's bears from now on. Wait, bears was all over the news? Is that what it, you're saying? Bears were suddenly were over the, well, they were on the news the week we launched. And that was that. Um, let's, talk, let's talk a little bit about, uh, a little bit about the book. Um, so you and your staff are producing tw 25 minutes of television or 161 shows a year, yeah. Um, which is a huge uh, volume of writing, especially Calcium since... Calcium depleting. Yeah, <laughs> particularly since the show is so dense and so densely mm -hmm. focused on your... And new. We're still, trying, we're still finding our process. So how and why did you decide to expand into a new medium? Um, uh, uh, well, uh, we had an opportunity to write a book, and we thought, well, it's the natural thing for uh, a character like this to do. I mean, all those guys, um, um, Joe Scarborough and Hannity, O'Reilly, Lou Dobbs, they all have their who's looking out for you or our broken borders or deliver us from evil. And, and we thought, we have to do one. Why beat around the bush? You know, let's just, let's just do it now before the election comes next year. And... Uh, the book is a, a pure extension of the show, the same way that any of those books that we're modeling ourselves on are a pure extension of the show, um, except that ours has stickers. <laughs> <laughs> Did you, again, go out and, and check out the, the books of the sure, competition? Sure, absolutely. I forced myself to read them. What was your, what was your favorite one? I think probably the, 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 the original, The O'Reilly Factor. Uh -huh. That book. What did you that, like about my it? Favorite, my favorite line in the O'Reilly Factor book, he's talking about women and, uh, and his advice. And he goes, I've dated hundreds of women. <laughs> I'd say that means I know a little something about them. And I thought, maybe that means you know nothing about them. <laughs> If you actually had to work your way through hundreds of them. And as you can see, that line could just be in my book. And actually might be in the book. I'm not entirely sure. Shh. By the way, I want to put to bed any rumors that any of this book is plagiarized. And I want to challenge uh, the audience out there and listening to find a single paragraph that is plagiarized in this book. You won't. <laughs> I'd love to see you try. <laughs> Are there things that you can do in this format uh, that you can't do on television? Were there new opportunities presented by the book? Y yeah, long, long, long format arguments. You know, you can actually we can spend 20 pages talking about religion, whereas you know on the show, two pages is about as long as we hold on any one idea, or the word is the longest we do. The word is like maybe eight pages long and only lasts three and a half minutes. Um, it, it's, it was really exciting for the writers, I think, and some of them, who are the writers here? Who, how many of the writers are here? Anybody? Can we give, uh, give uh, uh, props, as the kids say, to any of the writers show here? Anybody of the writers here? Raise your hands. Anybody here? No? No one is here. I wrote it myself. I wrote it all. Um, I think they were very excited about being able to express the character for long periods of time. They discovered things that he, he cared about that, that I think that he didn't, they didn't know he cared about before. What was, the, what was the process if you're writing a book with, you know, 10 or a dozen people? Um, very much like the way we do the show, which is we would identify, we'd go to a subject like, okay, obviously we need to talk about, uh, we need to talk about sex and dating. Um, about, that's me as a teenager, by the way, in case, uh, very sad childhood. Um, 
Uh, we obviously we have to talk about sex and dating. What's his what 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 is his concern that brings to it? And so we would meet with all the writers. We would talk about all the things that occurred to us, and we'd you know, break them off into little sections. They would they would they would write. They would bring them back to us, and then myself and and Allison Silverman and Rich Dom and Paul Danello would uh, stay at the show uh, all night long for six months and uh, and structure it into sort of cohesive chapters and cohesive uh, 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 themes. The the last chapter of, of the book is uh, the text of your uh, speech to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Yeah. Um, oh, when when you were invited to do that, uh, what did you th what did you think it was going to be? Well, first thing I thought was, are they crazy? <laughs> Have they seen the show? And evidently they had not seen the show. I just thought, what a fantastic opportunity. It's just, it's the apotheosis of, of, of my character's life to stand that close to uh, his man and talk. And I called, immediately called John Stewart and I said, John, they offered me the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And he goes, what, to go? To like eat? <laughs> and I said, no, to, to, to do it, to speak. And he goes, the one with Bush. And I said, <laughs> I said, yes. He goes, oh, are they crazy? Have they seen the show? And I said, I don't know. It's the guy. Evidently, it's the real guy. And, um, uh, and then, you know, we, we didn't work on it for months. Like, and that was in January or, or December even. And then we didn't, we really didn't start writing it until three weeks before the piece. And, and, and just every night, we kept, we'd sit around a circle and go, wow, we have a really rare opportunity here. We can't blow this. And uh, and we so we just got loaded for bear. <laughs> what? Um, how did you find the? How did you find the tone? Like, were there were there times when it was pitching too far one way or the other when you were the writing night it? or the writing it or the, the writing of it? Uh, there was some stuff we cut. I can't. There were some times we went, no, let's dial that back. But it was pretty rare, because my character can get away with saying a lot, because he he um, he loves the president and he's patently an idiot. So. <laughs> He's forgiven a lot. He's a holy innocent, I think they used to call them in the Middle Ages. Um, well, what, what about on the night? Like, did you, um, it, it's very hard to tell from watching it on video, which I'm sure everybody who applauded for it, that's how they saw it, what it was like. It's in also available on iTunes, by the way. There you go. Uh, what it's it number was, nine right now, just in case you're wondering. What, what it was like in the, in the space, because there's no... You know, it's C-SPAN, so there's sort of one camera on, on you, and there's no mic in the audience and no camera on the audience. Um, well, there was, you know, uh, over, over the, the, the mic, there was the really, they really didn't mic the audience. You had to get everything through the mic that was on the podium I was on, because the production values are kind of low there. And, but uh, how many people do you think are here? 300? Something like that? There were 3,000 people there that night in a room with tables, you know, can you imagine how huge the, the room was? And even, and I've, I've said this before, but it, it's true that even on the things that seem like they're just tanking completely, because you can't hear them over the mic, a thousand people are laughing in the back of the room, way, way, way far away from the president. <laughs> and so it was never quiet. I mean, you gotta laugh from a thousand people, that's, that's a high. And so I never felt like something terrible is going wrong here. I just felt like, well, I would like, you know, some, everybody laughed that time, some people laughing that time. And uh, so while it was going on, it was very easy to do because I really felt like it was going over. Were, were you scared going in? Not to put I too was fine pretty, I was on. pretty nervous, yeah, yeah, I was pretty nervous. Uh, especially since I was going down on the train uh, down there, I gave the whole uh, thing to my wife to proofread before I went down there, and she turned, she's in the seat in front of me on the train, and she would do this, she would go, oh, no. <laughs> oh, Stephen, you, oh, no. <laughs> and I'd go, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And I was like, they're gonna love it, they're gonna love it. They're all, he's gonna laugh too. He's gonna get these jokes better than anybody. I, I know the president gave you uh, like a hearty clap on the back. He did. He was very nice about it. Yeah, he was very nice about it. Um, wh what was what uh, what else was going on in the room afterwards? Like uh, not a lot of eye contact. <laughs> uh, 
That's when I kind of knew when things something was wrong. There wasn't a lot of eye contact from the front row, and uh, a I won't say who it is, but a noble black actor happened to be there that night, and he came up to me, and I noticed people weren't talking to me, and he goes, "Hey, man, that was great." I said, "Oh, thank you so much for saying it. I'm, I'm getting a sense that the people up uh, up on the podium didn't care for it." And he goes, "Fuck those people, man." <laughs> That was good. <laughs> and he walked out, yeah. Well, as, as you just mentioned, we have uh, two or 300 people here at the uh, Apple Store in Soho. So um, we've got some folks out in the uh, audience from the Apple Store with microphones. If you have a question you'd like to ask, raise your hand, and uh, we'll try and get a microphones to folks. Um, what was your fondest memory from Second City? Um, touring, uh, because I was hired the same day as Paul Danello and uh, a tour. They have a national touring company. You tour all around the United States and you do a show called Best of Second City and you learn scenes um, that had been written from the 50s, you know, late 50s until uh, the present day, which was for me, which was in the late 80s, early 90s. And uh, so I was learning stuff that had been, you know, improvised by. Um, Belushi and, and that crowd, uh, and even earlier in the in the 1960s, and um, I was hired on the same day as uh, Amy Sedaris and Paul Danello and Chris Farley, and we um, we all toured around the we toured toured around the country together for two and a half years, and it was great because you know you we didn't get paid hardly anything, it was seventy five dollars a show. But um, we were on the road. There was nothing you could do except be on the road. You, you were making some money, but you couldn't pay your bills. You'd want to, but you're away from home. You couldn't pay them. You'd go into a little town, and there, you know, it meant something to a small town for us to show up, and people would buy you beers after all, you know, after the show. Matter of fact, we used to end the show by saying, we are the second city. We'll be at the bar across the street. And that's how we made our, our bar bills. Uh, we've got one over here. Do you ever find yourself uh, slipping into character when you really don't mean to? Um, no. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, uh, no. <laughs> no, I'm married, and and that would not go over well. I used to actually, I used to uh, I get driven to and from work because just there was so much um, reading to do, from the newspaper or script or something like that. But that that ended quickly because. Um, I would only have the 30 seconds from my, my, my door uh, of the car to the front door to essentially get out of character if I had been reading scripts and character the whole way home. And she did not want him to come through that door. He's a terrible husband and a lousy father. So that's no more of that. No more um, of that. In, 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 in the, to follow up on that question, are there elements of the character that you kind of would like, that you kind of admire or would like to implement in real life, the way that some people watch Curb Your Enthusiasm, say, and admire Larry David? Uh, no, I'm, uh, there are parts of him I mean. I mean some of the things I say, but it's nobody's business which ones they are. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, there's some aspects of the character that aren't that aren't that aren't you know complete fabrications, if that's what you mean. Got one over here. Hi. Uh, yeah, I was wondering. I think I read somewhere that you teach Sunday school. I, I don't do it this year, um, but I, I I have for two years. I was just wondering, how does that go? <laughs> you know, <laughs> second graders don't watch the show, so <laughs> I hope. You know. Um, uh, so it, it goes just fine, you know. I, I think it's it's re it's really nice because I uh, uh, I'm not a particularly religious person, but I do go to church, and it's nice to spend some time with people who are not uh, uh, as urbane as I am, and and are, are 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 happy to listen to my views on religion, and they they accept it unquestioningly. <laughs> I recommend it. Get some second graders and tell them your ideas about. The universe, and they'll go, okay, all right, all right, all right. Have you encountered situations where people relate to you as your television character? Not in real really, life? not real. I mean, uh, people, uh, people generally know that that's a character because I think we we peek around it enough on the show that they know the difference between the two. But um, I, I have to say, there are some people I grew up with in my hometown in South Carolina who who have said to me, "See, now I like what you're saying." <laughs> Seriously. Right over here. 
Hi, I have a question. Steven, your show and The Daily Show both are, are very, at times, scathing critiques of American politics. And I'm just curious, what impact do you think your show is having on politics in this country? And was that ever your intention, or do you see yourself just as a comedian? No, I'm, I'm, I'm a comedian. Um, uh, people say, like, you know, are you influential? And uh, I don't know. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the writers of The Daily Show said to me, you know, I don't think it's whether it's our call as to whether influential, because if somebody says to you, oh, you influence me, well, if you say, no, I'm not, then you're calling them a liar. Okay, if, if somebody says that they're influenced by what we say or what we do, then, then, then we are, but that's not in our intention. And in terms of an impact, I don't think uh, comedy or satire has a lasting impact because the things we say and do don't get codified into law. You know, they're just momentary, uh, you know, they're a pressure valve release on people's, you know, fear or, 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 uh, or, or anger or just, you know, sense that something is bullshit. And um, that being said, I, I did declare uh, my intention to run for President of the United States tonight on my show um, in one state, in the state of South Carolina, as a, as a favorite son. Have there been things that you've done that have, had an, un, that have unexpectedly touched a nerve? Uh, in the audience that have had a particularly large reaction that you have, weren't expecting? There have been times, Allison, aren't there times that I've said something and, and, and we've said, really? Oh, David Beckham. David Beckham like hurt his ankle and we made some David Be I mean, we go hammering tongs after people and David Beckham hurts his ankle and I made some David Beckham joke and the audience went, oh. <laughs> and I'm like, really? Really? This is where you draw the line? And a man who's making $250 million to do jack squat? And so that surprises me. That's, that's shocking. Over here. Steven, the, the uh, duets have been fantastic. The Thank you very much. We hope to do a Christmas special of Stephen Colbert and Friends. <laughs> the idea being I'm snowbound in a cabin. And uh, musicians come to try to save me. Do you find yourself imagining like new places you can, new contexts in which you can put this character? Sure. He'll, he'll fit, he's just as uncomfortable everywhere, you know? <laughs> he's just as an ill fit everywhere he goes. So, so yeah, we, we enjoy that all the time. Right over here. Steven, you've been a performer for a number of years, I guess it's fair to say, and I'm, I'm wondering if, and the fact that you came to prominence, I guess, I don't want to say you're, you know, you're old, but relatively, relatively yeah, compared to, to other I, performers. No, 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 I understand. So I'm... <laughs> yeah, great, get I'm, to the question. What I'm wondering is, um, if there were any lean years, you know, in your, in your youth, oh, and yeah. how, did you, how did you stay motivated as a performer when financially you're not seeing rewards? Let's say, uh, I I I panicked. That's a great motivator, you know. Fear is a great motivator, and I there was a point at which that I realized that I there was no turning back. That this is what I did now, and I I was unemployed at the time, and uh, I uh, had you know, the, the phrase nervous breakdown gets thrown around so casually these days. <laughs> But there was a time when I remember my wife came home and I was, we had a nice apartment and we had a couch in the middle of the room and I was walking circles around the couch. She came home one day and she said, how, you know, how was your day? And I said, you're looking at it. I had spent the entire day walking in circles around the couch thinking, what will I do? This is what I do now and it's nearly impossible to have like a, a family doing this. And, uh, but the past, modern medicines <laughs> offer so much hope. Sometimes if you just hold the bottle, the fear will go away. You don't even have to take them. Are, but yeah, there were a lot of lean years. Yeah. Are there things that you'd like to do beyond the genre of fake news? Like if, if you weren't doing this television program, which it looks like has a fruitful future. Um, I'm, I, I've done other things that I've really enjoyed besides this, but right now um, this asks everything of me that I know how to do. You know, and as as executive producer and and uh, along with you know Allison, who's incredibly talented and, and a huge impact on what we do on the show every day, um, I get to write it and I uh, with my writers and I get to perform it and be part of the editing process. There's nothing I know how to do that isn't in here, uh, and so I don't. Everything else would seem like a little bit of a letdown right now. 
Well, Stephen Colbert's uh, new book available in iTunes in audio form is I Am America, and so can you. Stephen, thank you so much for being up here. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks very much. Thank you. Stephen Colbert's I'm America and So Can You is available now as an audiobook in the iTunes Store. I'm Jesse Thorne, the host of The Sound of Young America, a public radio show and podcast about things that are awesome. This episode of Meet the Author was produced by iTunes and the Apple Store in New York's Soho District. To purchase the audiobook or listen to more episodes in the series, click the link below or search for Meet the Author in the iTunes Store.